Welcome to What About This? When we think about dyslexia, we may have a fun list come to mind of famous artists who overcame their dyslexia to become really successful, like Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Aniston, Whoopi Goldberg, and music-producing billionaire Richard Branson. But as a teacher in the public school system, I get frustrated that, sure, this list is fun and exciting and reminds us that it's possible to overcome obstacles, but teachers are not given programs to help teach all children in our classrooms to read. When a diagnosis of dyslexia is made, and an individual education plan is in place for the student, otherwise known as an IEP in Canada. It is really up to the teacher, not a special education, not a specialist, to decide how or even if they will help a student with dyslexia learn how to decode the written language. And it can feel like you're just grabbing at random things online, just hoping something will be useful. So I set out to learn more about dyslexia, the dyslexic brain, and how I can become a better teacher so all my students can be the awesome readers and writers that I know they can be. First, I wanted to understand what it is like to have dyslexia. So I called up Lloyd. She's a 16-year-old student in Toronto. Hi, Lloyd. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, of course. Lloyd started school in a public school, but it became obvious that her elementary teachers didn't know how to teach her. By the time I was in grade two, grade three, at that point I couldn't read at all. And my grade three teacher decided that because I couldn't read, I also couldn't do math, I couldn't do social studies, like I couldn't do anything. I was just stupid. Were you able to know what was going on and have the words to say, you know what, it's just I just need help to learn in another way. Oh, absolutely not. By grade three, I had a horrendous teacher, and um, he hated he hated my brother. He hated a lot of people, and he was really mean to them. But he was really nice to me, as long as I didn't ask questions. And whenever I – I remember doing, I think it was a spelling test, and I didn't know what one of the words said. So answered the question. So I went up and asked him, and he said, "Oh, it's okay." And he just took my test away. It's really interesting hearing different people's perspectives on how to approach learning to read in different ways. And people say, "Well, it's the teacher's responsibilities," and the teachers say, "Well, no, it's the system's responsibilities." And I, <laughs> I just hear you as a student going, "No, excuse me. Like, if this is for me, like, I need your teachers." You need to figure it out, folks, adults, because I'm not learning the way I need to learn. And it, to be honest, uh, I'm sorry you had those experiences with those teachers, but as a teacher, I feel like there's no resources given to us to help. So it's always up to us to say, okay, I think this is what we're supposed to do. And we go from there. That must be so frustrating for you. Yeah. And even like my whole life, my mother has been a person who like, walk me into the school and demand to get something from it and that's how I got an IEP in the like beginning and they still didn't follow it and every day before school I would cry 
and I would beg my mother not to make me go. It is, I was always exhausted. So what do you wish the teachers, now that you've had, you're older, you have some probably some really great tools and strategies now you use, what do you wish they would have done instead, if you could go back in time? Preferably would have needed to start off with not thinking I was stupid. Because when, as a young child, and the people who are supposed to teach you give up on teaching you and treat you like you're stupid, the stupidest person in the class, that takes away all your motivation. And at least for me, you need, I need motivation to learn. In my brain, it didn't make sense why certain sounds, like certain letters made certain sounds. And like just take time and explain things. Like IU makes a sound that IE doesn't. I didn't understand that because everything I would like read, I would do it phonetically. Like, I would just sound it out. And that was a big start. No one taught me that at first. That was a big start. The public school system failed you. And so you and your family decided to go towards a private school. What was that like? I'm very isolated because I went to small ones. Because obviously the big ones my mom couldn't afford. And I felt really withdrawn from my community. The first private school I went to did not work. Barely didn't teach me anything at all. Um, my second private school, I went to four years. That has its problems and it's right, but I'm not going to discuss that. <laughs> but, what um, approach do they use? Is this the Orton-Gillingham? Yeah, they use Orton-Gillingham. And what was it then. that made you not like it? They treat kids more like objects rather than people if I'm to put this nicely. But that being said, even though I cried myself to sleep and cried going to school a lot, a lot of crying through those four years, it did teach me to read. It did. That I'm not going to lie. That's probably the only reason I can read and can write. Did they teach me other things like math, science, social studies? No. They only taught me writing. And it was like, even in math, they somehow incorporated writing and reading into it. So my entire day was writing and reading. And then going back into the public school for high school, what was that like? Um, it was definitely a culture shock. Definitely. Because I, I had 10 kids, including myself, graduating grade 8. And going to a school with 1,500, culture shock. I was so unprepared. Um, so... I did not do very well in any subject other than English, surprisingly. But I did do very well in English. And even now, to this day, English is one of my best subjects, which is a con. Like, it, I never thought English would be one of my best subjects ever. Never. And I came into high school, and I was like, whoa. And even now, all my electives are writing and reading-based. Never thought that was even a possibility. So wow, that's eh? Yeah. <laughs> and what what is it you like to write? Do you like creative writing? Do you like opinion pieces? Are you able to, feels like you've been through a lot. Are you able to express yourself through your writing? Honestly, no. <laughs> That's, I For me to write, I have to be very passionate about the subject. For me to actually enjoy writing and have, I have to be passionate about the subject. Um, like I will get, 
if I hate something, like when I'm made to read a certain book and write about it, worst thing ever because it takes me double the time, triple the time. And like I've I've talked to other dyslexic dyslexic people about this. That is one of the worst activities: reading and then getting knowledge from it and writing it down. Oh, hate that. And um, why is that? Those, why is that? Why is that so hard? So it ends up how I have like five times the amount of homework as everyone else because I just it just takes me so long. So I will have like digital and hand copies of everything. I find really helpful to have the book copy and an audio copy. So I can like I'm not gonna lie, a lot of teachers are like you have to follow along, like you have to like be reading and listening. I'm not gonna do that at all whatsoever. That's a waste of my time in my personal opinion because I can be doing other things. I work out a lot. I like to work out and listen to an audiobook or do things. I'm not going to sit there and read a not like that's just something personally I'm not going to do. But so if you're like physically have, active, if you're physically active and listening or reading, then you will be able to process what you're reading faster? Oh, for sure. Because if I'm sitting there trying like listen like looking at the book, listening along, I'm going to get bored and I'm going to get distracted. I will walk my dog for like two hours at a time listening to an audiobook just because like that's how I process it. It's and then I've tried to explain this to some teachers and some teachers are really, really stubborn about it. They're like, No, you have and I'm like, Okay, you can be stubborn but other teachers, my favorite teacher, she's so accommodating. She's it's great. So like the teachers who know what they're talking about and have experience and aren't just like stuck in their ways. Those are the teachers that I get along best with. Were you aware that there's a superpower that comes with dyslexia that is a heightened social and emotional intelligence? When you look back, do you see that in yourself, like the more artistic, problem-solving, higher-level thinking? I've never heard that before. But that is interesting to know. What advice do you have for people who have just found out that they have dyslexia? Oh, um, I just wouldn't look at it as a disadvantage, and I sure as heck would not let it stop you from any goals you want. The amount of times I've been told that I shouldn't or can't go to university because I'm dyslexic is way too many. And I'm taking all in university courses, and I plan to go to university. And I, like, if it's really important to push yourself, I push myself to your limit, but please don't break yourself. That's something that I think everyone needs to know. Like, school is school, and it is important. It should be a priority. But don't break yourself to the point where you can't do anything, because I've done that. I've pushed myself way too hard, and I haven't. I've just, I I drowned myself. But I think I'm getting better at it. (laughs) And I'm so glad to hear that, Lloyd. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. As a teacher, I know we all have to do better. Many public schools have experienced cuts to their special education programs, and it is often up to the homeroom teacher to find different ways to teach reading. So I set out to learn more about what actually is dyslexia. I've always said that dyslexia is not a disability, but it's a difference. And it's a difference in how children and adults uh, process information. 
that they process information in a different way. It may not be the logical, linear fashion that um, you know, one would expect. You go from A to B and from B to C, but they may go from A to Z and then back to M and back to A. Um, so they've got their own way of processing information. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's just a difference. The problem is, at school, uh, there's a very, there's a convention <laughs> that you've got to do things a certain way. And examination system is really geared to people who think straight. This is Dr. Gavin Reed, who is an education psychologist and author of over 40 books. He taught many years in high schools and at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, before settling in Vancouver, British Columbia. He provides psychological assessments all over the country and continues to create resources to help learners with dyslexia. I, of course, had to ask the question, what is happening to the dyslexic brain when learning to read? I see dyslexia as a processing difficulty, which usually comes out in reading. It can come out in spelling, it can come out in writing, and other things as well. But now with MRI studies, you can see actually what's happening in the brain when a child processes or decodes a word or a syllable. And you can see which areas of the brain are being activated when they're doing the reading. And you can do that through MRI studies. And the studies which have been published suggest that when children with dyslexia are reading, they tend to use the wrong part of the brain. The best part for reading was a cluster of cells in the left hemisphere, whereas when the MRI studies show that they're using very few of those cells, they tend to be using the areas in the right hemisphere, which is more the area for, generally speaking, very crudely speaking, for comprehension, visual processing, creativity, artistic emotional side as well. That would might be the right, whereas the left is the direct linear language especially and decoding print and looking at fine details. And the studies do show that, you know, that perhaps there is more strength or perhaps there's more maturity at an earlier age in that different part of the hemisphere, the right hemisphere. So some of the studies suggest that when dyslexic children read, they become they're not accurate readers, but they could have good comprehension. Um, so the comprehension could be okay. So when they're reading silently, they might actually get the comprehension okay. But when they read aloud, then you'll see, gosh, they're making lots of mistakes. Um, and is the right read- side of the brain, if that's more engaged and uh, when they read and decode, does that access the more artistic self, the creator, the problem solver? I would say so, because, you know, when you look at the research, you look at the profiles of young people with dyslexia and adults with dyslexia, you'll find there's a higher percentage of dyslexic people going for engineering, uh, arts, artistic, the artistic profession, advertising, uh, even journalism, the creative kind of where you've got to think outside the box, where you've got to look for a new angle rather than just replicate what's been done before. And so what advice would you give to um, a student who is struggling within the public school system, doesn't feel like they're being taught how they need to be taught? I I would say the first thing we've got to do is to actually be able to express that to somebody because the research shows that a lot of people with dyslexia in the school system hide, they cover up. They don't want to say, I've got a difficulty. Nobody wants to say that. You know, they're almost uh, feel embarrassed. 
by the fact that they cannot read, yet other children can't. So that's the first thing we've got to do is to accept, look, I've got a difficulty here and I need to speak to somebody about it. So they've got to talk to the year teacher or the class teacher. And so when um, a program, I know you've created some programs too, you have a workbook coming out soon, which is fabulous. Um, it has to do with phonological processing. So is it about engaging different parts of the brain, the visual, the auditory, and the working memory, and phonological processing all at once? Is that what makes a program successful? And that's one of the key principles of teaching children with dyslexia is it's multi-sensory. And you've just suggested the visual, the auditory, kinesthetic, and tactile. So make sure that when you're teaching them, whatever it is you're teaching, sound, syllables, or words, or whatever, they would use the Orton-Gillingham approach, OG. And, and that's used, and it's a very successful, a very effective approach. And uh, that just lends itself to multi-sensory intervention. But you don't expect gains in days. It might take weeks, months, and perhaps for some children, years. And we've got to be aware of that and not make, not make expectations too far-reaching. That make them, Expectations should be manageable. They should be achievable. So you've got to, you've got to try to reduce that um, steps to make sure it's achievable. And I think this leads to one of my final questions: Is do you think the human brain is made to read and write? Um, well, it's it's a kind of controversial question that, in a sense, that we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that reading is a relatively new phenomenon. In what was it like a 16, 15th century or 16th century when print came uh, came about? So until then, we as human beings didn't have to look at close detail at print. Other things were more important for survival. So from that point of view, the, you might say, and there's a few people who've done research on this, uh, that the human brain is still evolving in terms of uh, being able to access print easily and so it's um but i think it's got the, obviously it has the potential to access print we do that um but an interesting book by the man called tom west and he also says that we're now moving into a visual age with computers and visual imagery and in the next century you might say or half century uh, people with dyslexia could actually be at the forefront in fact they are at the moment when you look at computers and you look at the companies who do programming, you'll find lots of people with dyslexia there. So they are actually at the forefront in that respect. So because that engages the visual part of the brain that they excel in and can process really uh, well yeah. in and creatively in. Yeah, so right? the creativity, the creativity, the innovation, uh, the thinking outside the box, the development, uh, and yes, the visual imagery and there's just uh, that kind of a spatial ability which they sometimes have. So that's one of the pluses, one of the positive sides. Wonderful. And I guess it's about encouraging that positivity, that confidence at a young age. That's, that it, Exactly. It, the school system is, I mean, the school system now acknowledges the technology much more than it embraces it now and develops it. Uh, and that's, there's an opportunity there for people with dyslexia to really find their niche at school and not wait until to leave school. Thank you so much, Gavin. Do you have anything else you want to add? 
Um, well, I think you've covered. If I was going to ask you questions, I think I'd ask the same questions as you did. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I'm on the right track. Yeah, I think it's the only thing is um, is one of the the percentage how many people have dyslexia. You know the the figures range depending on the whether you're severe or mild. But some people quote say fifteen percent. Uh, in the dyslexia kind of spectrum, which is quite alarming, which means that virtually in every classroom in the, in the country, there might be one or two dyslexic children. So next I reached out to a teacher, Rebecca Halliday, who lives in Moncton, New Brunswick, and has created a designated school for neurodiverse students called Riverbend Community School. So I've been talking to people. I talked to a 16-year-old student here in Toronto, Ontario, and then I talked to some dyslexia specialists in BC, and now we're traveling to the other side of the country in New Brunswick. Um, So I feel like (laughs) this is like Canadian. What's that CBC show? Check-in? Canada check-in. Cross-Canada. Cross-country. There you go. Cross-country (laughs) check-in. So... You run an independent school that specializes in neurodiversity. Why did this happen in your life? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I actually asked myself that question many times. And before I opened the school, I was actually running a tutoring center that just focused on working with the struggling reader. And most of those students were dyslexic. And so I did my ed degree and I taught in the public system. And then um, my mom is a retired educator and really always um, gravitated towards the struggling reader as well. And I became really sort of intrigued by language-based learning disabilities and just like why kids weren't getting it. And um, but I had no specialized training in reading intervention or Orton Gillingham or anything like that at the time. And then I was running the, the tutoring center for a few years. And then parents started coming forward to me and saying, like, can you just do this full time? And then we had a public meeting for parents to come in and just talk about the curriculum and what it could look like and, you know, have everyone's voice heard. And I had my first group of six students and a six month old baby. And I just went for it in the fall of September 2013. And it was just amazing because we kind of learned together what does a classroom look like that is executive functioning friendly, dyslexia friendly. And, you know, I just learned so much about how they learned. And then alongside of it, I was learning more about ADHD kids because oftentimes kids with dyslexia are comorbid with ADHD. And so my classroom experience became just this really or neurodiverse friendly space without me really knowing that that's what the label was. And six kids turned into 16 kids by the next year. And, and we're, you know, um, year, year nine coming up in this, in the fall. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so why do you think there's a need for reading intervention? School is not a friendly place for many kids with LD and ADHD, and it's not made for them. Um, And I just feel very passionately that, you know, public school could certainly be because the teaching strategies and the way we teach kids with dyslexia is really beneficial for all students. So that's kind of where I come from 
in terms of why I feel it's really important in, in to do this and to have a model like this. But in New Brunswick in particular, we're really behind the times in terms of many other uh, provinces have what's called charter schools or um, the government will fund private schools or independent schools like mine that will take kids that are neurodiverse and teach them using special instruction, you know, methodologies and the Orton-Gillingham approach. And those kids, um, they have what's called tuition transfer and the money follows them when they leave public school because the government believes that having other types of schooling available benefits the community at large. And in New Brunswick, um, our our community and our uh, government certainly doesn't believe in that. And that's where um, I feel really passionate that I just stuck to my guns and kept trying to provide the service in in New Brunswick and in Moncton, and I'm the only person that does that here, and that's wow. really a shame because it shouldn't be that way. Yes, and so if you had a magic wand and mm. could kind of focus on what works really well in your independent school and apply that to a public school, what would be like the top three uh, things to help all reading learners? There's, there's two kind of strands for me. Focusing on the science of reading, which is um, effective, so explicit, direct, multisensory instruction um, that uses, you know, something like the Orton-Gillingham approach combined with also building children's background knowledge across content area starting in kindergarten. So oftentimes we we kind of leave really intensive content instruction till maybe grade two, grade three. Um, and what the science of reading will tell us is that we have to begin building kids' background knowledge around, you know, um, science and math and technology and all these really, and, and history, um, even before they can read. Because what happens is if kids are not decoding, meaning they're not learning to read well, um, kids can still be developing their content area while they learn to decode. Because um, once they become decoders and they learn to read words, if they're missing this huge area of content, they can read words, but then they can't make meaning out of what they read. We see that in our older struggling readers, like, yay, they finally cracked the code, but they can't make meaning and their comprehension is really behind because they're behind thousands of words in their vocabulary. They weren't exposed because, oh, they're a struggling reader. Let's just work on decoding only. The science of reading and teaching reading is so, so, so complex. And what teachers, I think, don't realize, I just did a big PD session for public school teachers, they don't realize that learning to read is absolutely not natural. It is learning to speak is natural. We pick it up no matter the language, right? Um, we see, you know, animals in the animal kingdom can learn sign language. Like there's just, it's amazing what we develop from a language standpoint, but reading is a series of symbols that we attached to sounds. And for many, many kids, that's not an easy task. And And so if they don't learn to read given the traditional approach then what and that's where teachers just get really stumped like well they're not learning to read in the way or they're not learning to read by osmosis what's happening here it's actually a complex as a teacher i find what i hear and also my own voice is what do i do i don't have any resources no one says here we have this diagnosis you have your psych assessment here you go here's the program you're going to use it's kind of like here you go <laughs> off you go and it's like ah yeah and I think that's the thing. If all teachers were trained using the science of reading um, and that approach, then all teachers would know, would be empowered. And this is not a small, you know, very small demographic of of students. This is a huge demographic. There are dyslexic kids, I would venture to say, in every classroom. 
Um, and that the beauty of it is, is that if you are trained in the science of reading, if all teachers would be, then all students would have access to that type of reading instruction, which just then, so kids who are going to learn to read are gonna learn to read, you know what I mean? Um, the kids who are not need that. So the, if, if it could be a huge paradigm shift that we just teach reading this way, and this, the science of reading is also settled science. You know how we, we've gone from whole language and whole reading to balanced literacy. Like this is not a, science of reading is not a fad that all of a sudden in 10 years, we're gonna not say, oop, bro, those brain scans were wrong. Like this is settled science, right? And what is um, science of reading? Is this a program? I've never heard of it. Well, it's not, it's not a program. So it's, um, it's really a, a, an approach to reading. So it's the, the idea that we we teach phonemic awareness and the five pillars, right? So we teach um, phonological awareness, phonics, um, language skills, comprehension, vocabulary in this very settled way, the approach in which we tack. So, for example, phonological awareness is really 10 skills, like um, rhyming and syllable, understanding that words are made up of sounds first. If you take a kid in grade five that can't chunk up the word, like say you say the word compartment, Kids with dyslexia often can't hear m, e, n, t. They hear like ment, or they might hear m, ent, but they don't understand that e, n, t are three separate sounds. That's because their phonological awareness is really impaired. If a kid in grade five can't do that, you honestly need to stop any kind of other kind of instruction and work just on their phonological awareness. But most teachers don't know that. Like if their phonological awareness is not totally up to snuff, you shouldn't really even be diving into phonics yet, which is all sound. So science of reading really talks about how how we teach reading effectively using those five language pillars. And we're, it's starting to become more normalized. There's a really wonderful podcast called Science of Reading. I encourage all teachers to listen to it. Absolutely, it will change. And it, it's, 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 it's accessible um, for all teachers. Like it doesn't make it so complex that you're like, this is really hard to listen to, or this is too sciencey for me, right? Like it makes it accessible for teachers to really understand like, oh, okay, so there is a way how the brain learns to read and it uses that way, those, those neural pathways. And it talks about the emphasis of multi-sensory approaches, like, you know, writing letter sounds and sand trays as we look at it on a screen, like those, those science tells us that those ways really help all students, but particularly dyslexic students. And what is the response you get from the teachers you're working with? Oh, the teacher response has been wonderful. Um, my first, this was my first PD session I had done, and they were like, this was so, because it's very hands-on and, and it take, you take strategies away if you use, like using the science of reading. And it's all about like associating sounds to letter tiles so kids can move those and blend those. And it gives kids tools in their hands to make you know, abstract ideas around reading that they don't understand kind of come to life and become more tactile. So when they when they do it using this approach, they feel they I think a lot of teachers feel foolish and feel really ashamed of the fact that they couldn't reach their kids. And once they know about it and then later they go, Oh, I could have done this with this kid, there's a lot of like they have to grapple with a lot of guilt. Um and once they learn it and they're like, Wow, I felt I feel so empowered to help these kids um, because it really does work for all all struggling readers. I wonder what suggestions you have for families who have just learned that their child is dyslexic, um, what their first approach is. 
we really want kids to know and families to understand is that the profile of a dyslexic learner has nothing to do with their intelligence. That's number one. IQ, vocabulary, all those things. That's why dyslexia makes no sense, right? The profile of a kid with dyslexia is a kid who has average or above average intelligence, which does not match up with what they can or can't do with the printed printed text. So, like, that's what makes it really confusing for parents because they'll say he was so smart and he talked early or he can carry on a conversation and has, like, the best ability to, like, take apart a bicycle and put it back together. We don't even know how he did it but he can't read. You know, everybody's story is some version of that, right? We knew he was so wildly smart and capable and then he couldn't put act together. Like what, that doesn't make sense. If you teach kids explicitly all the rules, like English is a very rule-based thing and then allow them to practice those rules to mastery and help them understand when the word to, T-W-O, is a chunk that you just have to remember that the and then the ooh part is just W-O, and we we map that to our brains instead of saying, like, just memorize it. Like, we have to stop teaching kids to memorize things. That's not actually reading. Like, there are ways we teach reading explicitly and directly that, that demystifies learning to read. And I think teachers just do a lot of that, like, kid, don't worry about it. Just Just memorize it, and you'll be cool. When we give them the, you know, we give them the tools and the explicit, like, rules, they're like, oh, that's why this is, or... You know, and we do it in a very hands-on way. They start to feel really empowered that they can figure out really hard words using these rules that they learn slowly to mastery. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and thank you for all the work you're doing. Well, thanks for hearing my story. I appreciate it. I'm starting to get a list of all these great resources, and if you're interested, I will post them on our podcast website. So please have a look. And there's one more I would like to add. It's a must-read book called Not Stupid, Not Lazy. It is written by Dr. Linda Siegel, who is a psychologist, researcher, and professor of education at the University of British Columbia. When I talked to Linda, she quickly wanted to make sure I knew that right now, the public school system in Ontario is about to go through a big move to improve how we teach all children to read. Have you heard of the right to read inquiry of the Ontario Human Rights Commission? Mm, I'm going to say no. It doesn't come to mind. No. Um, What this, the Ontario Human Rights Commission is very concerned about how people with dyslexia are not properly identified in the school system, how they experience a lot of failure how teachers are not trained to deal with it. So they have a big inquiry going. The report is not finished yet, but they do have a website where they describe what they're doing is reviewing the the ministry guidelines, and but I'm not supposed to talk about it. I can talk about (laughs) what they're doing, but I can't talk about their results. So do you see a move in public school system to face that this is a problem? When this report comes out, it's it's on Ontario, but it's this is a universal problem in all the provinces, many of the states, many countries. This is really make a difference because there will be no excuses for 
not doing what they're supposed to be doing. We know how to identify students who are at risk for having dyslexia. We could design assessments that teachers, if trained, and it doesn't take a great deal of training, but some training, to assess the the children at risk, to assess whether or not they have dyslexia, and most importantly, to figure out what kind of intervention they need, because there are good interventions that exist now. We could treat the difficulty early, you know, kindergarten, grade one, grade two, then there would be many fewer problems in the older grades. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so what's well, in the way of... Well, you know, this, is, this is what we keep saying, um, but it's not happening now. It's not happening at all. Is it the price tag? Is that really the issue? That it costs money to do this? No, it would be much cheaper to do it than what we do now. And how, how do you figure that? Well, for example, you know, identifying children in kindergarten, and we wouldn't say they were dyslexic, we'd say they were at risk, and having a good educational program, which would benefit everybody, not just uh, children with dyslexia or risk for dyslexia, would save money from all of the many negative effects of not really taking care of the dyslexia. Our prisons are filled with people who have dyslexia, who haven't been properly identified. I've done studies of homeless young people. Many of them are dyslexic or have another learning disability, which has not been properly identified. So you think about all these costs to society, homelessness, antisocial behavior, prisons, substance abuse, et cetera, that we could significantly reduce that. Thank you for joining me today as we become better at finding the right strategies to help all students learn to read and write. I have posted these resources on our website, There are also links to the Ontario Human Rights Commission public inquiry into our right to read. The report is scheduled to be released in February 2022. Thank you to all of our guests today from across the country. Lloyd, Dr. Gavin Reed, Rebecca Halliday, and Dr. Linda Siegel. And thank you to Jason for audio mixing. You can listen to all episodes of What About This with Rachel wherever you get your podcasts. Have a good day and take care.